Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to cover the murders of Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner. And these murders happened while they were at a Girl Scout camp. So this is often referred to as the Girl Scout murders. This one was a very heavy one to research. Yeah, I don't think I felt anything this heavy since Texas Killing Fields. Yeah. And this was actually recommended by one of our listeners, James. It's a very interesting and sad case. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. And I don't understand how this one got by me. I didn't realize that this had happened. Had you? I hadn't heard of it, but I do find it interesting because I think that this in particular shaped a lot of how maybe we were raised. I mean, I was born 10 years after this. So my parents and like Amanda's a year younger than me. So her mom too, like they heard about this before they had like tiny children. And I feel like that would be really hard. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so thank you, James, for sending us this case. If anyone does have any cases they also want us to review, feel free to message us or hit us up on social media and we'd love to do it. Yeah. So with that, let's take us back to 1977 first, right? Because that's before Lindsay and I were born. Yes. And so we we did research a little bit of what the day today was like and what was popular then. So it was quite a bit different than it is today. Kids had things like pet rocks, Ataris. So, I mean, today's kids still have similar things. (laughs) But I think it like came out when they were kids. So it was like (gasps) this brand new thing. It was awesome. Yeah. So music was played on eight tracks. A lot of us have never even touched one. Can I tell you that, oh, until a few years ago, I hadn't ever seen the words written down what it was called. And I'd never seen one. So I thought it was A tracks. Like, oh, yeah. Like A side of a cassette tape thing. Like that was like my mentality. I thought it was an A track because people weren't enunciating it. So they were saying eight tracks and I was hearing A tracks. Yeah. So I didn't feel very smart when I realized that. <laughs> I mean, how how are you supposed to know that when we were born, it was still tapes? Yeah, cassette tapes. Yeah. Which honestly, I feel like were just fantastic because they were so portable. And they didn't even skip. Yeah, you could go on a walk <laughs> and you didn't have to have your anti-skip discman that still skipped if you took a big step. Yeah. Or tripped because you're clumsy. Yeah. Yeah. And it took up a lot of room in your backpack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So this was also the first generation who grew up with Sesame Street. And Sesame Street has been in the news a lot. Have you seen? I love it. Yes, I have. Specifically for Pride Month. Yes. Yeah, I watched the little clip this morning and I was like, I love it. I know that a lot of people look at Pride Month and they see a lot of corporations being like, oh, you changed your profile photo to rainbows. Or there's a grocery store across the street from me. It's a chain. It's giant. And my dad was like, they have like a seasonal flavor and their seasonal flavor is gay. Like right now, (laughs) like it's like rainbows. (laughs) And my dad was like, do you know what the seasonal flavor is? And I was like, is it rainbows? And he's like, yeah, that's like not because it's rainbows, but like that's not a flavor. Like they do lemon in the summertime typically and pumpkin in the fall. And then in June they do gay. And I love that. And like as a queer person, 
I find it so wonderful to look around and see rainbows because that is not something that I ever imagined in our lifetime. And I still like if I go to like the mall or Target or somewhere and I see like the little section. Well, the little section. Yes, always. But also like if I see the little queer couple, I like get real misty. Like, you know, when they're teenagers, I'm like, I couldn't do that. I wanted to do that, but I couldn't. Or like it wasn't in some places it wasn't even safe. In some places it's still not safe. But I mean, just seeing like progress, progress. And I get it. Like to a certain extent, places just also just want gay money, right? They're like, you'll buy from us if we make a rainbow thing. And I'm like, you're right. I will. (laughs) Well, even with this, though, I I assume that this family continues to stay on Sesame Street. So it's like a lasting effect that they made on their show. Yeah. So interesting and exciting. But yeah, this was the first generation who grew up with Sesame Street. So this generation also came home when the streetlights came on. I feel like that continued for a while because that was my rule too when I was little. Um, our rule, see, the house that we had, we rented from the doctor's office that was behind us. So there was like this giant parking lot where the lights were on all day. Like it just didn't turn off. Like the lights were just like, you could see them kind of on in the day. Yeah, your neighborhood was broken. Yeah, it was broken. And the way that like it was set up, like there just wasn't street lights. So, you know, but be home at dark. There was like one kid's house that we used to go to. So we were there at our house. Like there was no other in between. So like our parents knew that we were there or at their house. So yeah, fair. Also, so for some of us, our parents were either part of this generation or were young adults during this time. Now, as Lindsay previously mentioned, this case in particular might be part of why they raised us the way that they did. You would think that girls would be safe at summer camp. I know we weren't allowed to go to things like camp. Yeah. Maybe this is why. You know, maybe I know my mom was a little bit younger at this time, but I could see her not being able to go to things. And then that may be the reason why we couldn't. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I mean, we talk about it in Texas Killing Fields that the murders started in the 70s that we are aware of. And a lot of those were of young women. And then in our last true crime update, we talked about Joan, also a Girl Scout, heartbreaking. And she was just a kid. And I just feel like it was probably like all of a sudden they were hearing about this more and more and more. And it wasn't that it wasn't happening. It was that people were saying dumb things like, oh, that seven-year-old just ran away. Yeah, exactly. And seven-year-olds don't run away. Yeah. Okay, so we have a few sections that we're going to break this into. So first, we're going to talk about the three girls. The oldest of the three was Denise Milner, and she was 10 years old. Her actual name was Doris Denise Milner, but we're going to call her Denise. At home, she was the oldest sister, and she had a younger sister named Cassie. Her parents, Betty and Walter, had recently divorced. And so one of the things that Denise would do to help out is she would wake up before everyone and she would make breakfast for her mom and her little sister, which I thought was very sweet. Mm -hmm. Just at like 10 years old, you know? Right. And like, I don't know about you, but like at that age when you were able to like do something by yourself, you were like, yeah, yeah. And so Betty said that Denise did everything too quick. She talked before most kids. She walked early and she wanted to be involved in just everything. So she did gymnastics, tap dancing. She sang in the church choir. And her mom said there was not enough hours in a day for that child. No. Because she just wanted to like do so much. And all three are heartbreaking. But the idea of like a kid who's like hungry for life. Yeah. It makes it hurt a little more. Yeah. And so this was Denise's first year in Girl Scouts. 
Now, as always, we list our sources on our site. There is, it's called Tulsa World, I believe. It's a Tulsa publication that has a very in-depth series on this that we read. But so Tulsa World interviewed Michelle Hoffman. She had been going to the camp for years, and it was her first year where she was going not as a camper, but as as a counselor's aide. So she was very excited. And we're going to talk a little bit about her in a bit. So we're going to keep coming back to her. Because we have another Michelle, we're going to call her Hoffman, just so you're not thinking that there's a young woman named Hoffman. So she remembered seeing Denise Milner in the parking lot and looking nervous. There was so many girls and I want to think we'll get to it but it was over a hundred lots of little kids here and Denise was the only black girl in the group in 1977 which feels like would have been really rough yeah it would have been hard for her it would have been really hard and it's not surprising she was nervous so Hoffman went over and introduced herself to Denise and Betty and Denise was reluctant like she was like "Uh, I don't know if I want to go like I don't know if I want to do this and so Hoffman offers to ride on the bus with Denise. And just as a note, so the parents dropped their kids off at like a parking lot area, and then they drove for about an hour and a half to the actual camp itself. So parents weren't taking their kids there. They were meeting in a parking lot, loading them up on buses, and away they went. So Betty was obviously understandably concerned about her daughter because it was her first time at something like this, and she wanted to make sure she felt like she was going to have fun. And so she asks Hoffman to help Denise call her the next day if she's still homesick. And Hoffman agrees, even though she knows that that's generally not what they do at camp, because typically, like, they'll work it out in a day or two. They just need to, like, be in the new space. So from what Hoffman had said, too, in this article, that typically they also didn't do it because it can make the girls even more sad if they spoke with someone at home and more homesick. So they try to stray away. Yeah, and that that makes sense. And so we're going to talk about the camp next. But Denise was in the Kiowa unit and Hoffman helped her find her way there. Now, when Hoffman was Denise's age, she stayed in the same tent, which was tent number eight. And it was the last in the horseshoe, which again, we'll describe in a moment. And Hoffman told Denise, she was like, oh, this was my favorite, right? Which can't you imagine talking to a little kid and trying to get them hyped up because they're nervous and being like, this is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So in the unit, they had three counselors and one of them was Carla Willite. And she said that Denise and her tentmates, Laurie and Michelle, who we'll talk about in a moment, didn't know one another, but they became fast friends. That night after the campfire, Hoffman checked in on Denise and she saw that she was doing really well and was like, oh, okay, like a little bit relieved. And so one of the things that they found in the tent were the last letters from each of the girls. So as we talk about them, we're also going to talk about their last letters. So this is Denise's. Dear mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. That note is so heartbreaking. Right. And we'll talk about it more, but the idea of how Betty must have felt when her daughter was like reluctant and maybe didn't want to go. And she's like, no, 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 go. Like, you're going to have fun because she's trying to push her and help her grow. And like, that's what good moms do. Ugh. Yeah. And I can't put myself in that place knowing that you push for something that technically should have been good. Like it should have been good for your daughter to explore and learn new things and also make new friends and acclimate with new people. And then that's what happened. Night one. Are you aware that you did quote a Girl Scout song just now? No. You did make new friends. I was never in the Girl Scouts. Oh, by the way, I went in daisies through cadets. I did the whole shabille. 
Anywho, so let's talk about the other girls. Right. So the other little girl is named Lori Farmer, and she was eight years old, and she was the first of five children. She was also very mature for her age. And her parents were Sherry and Charles, or he went by Bo Farmer. Lori loved to read and was so smart that she skipped second grade. She had just finished fourth grade at this time, and it was the first time she was ever going away somewhere without her parents. Also, just a quick note, her ninth birthday would have been during camp. And her parents had planned on going to the camp and visiting her for it and having like a little birthday celebration together because it's her birthday. They always have to be together. Yeah. So her last letter was Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy. I love that. I know everyone. We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 745. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. (laughs) With love, Lori. I think one of the sweetest things about these letters, too, is they sound very adult. Don't they? For, like, very young kids. They're not very young kids, but for kids. Yeah. With love, mine would have been, like, scribble heart. Barely my name. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I would have been, like, dear mom and dad. And then I would have, like, drew a picture and then been, like... Lindsay. Yeah. And the third little girl's name was Michelle Gousset. She was nine years old. Her parents were Georgianne and Richard Gousset. She had asked her mom to take care of her plants while she was away, especially her African violets. I love it. I just love her. Yes. That's the same thing I say when I go away. Please take care of my gardens. Also, just as a general note, Amanda has to like garden in the middle of the night because it's so hot there. She'll send me a message and I'll get it the next morning because that three hour difference. She'll be like, I'm watering my plants and i'm like it's three in the morning (laughs) (laughs) it's still like 100 degrees here for some reason but i can't do it during the day anymore and i just need them to live just to get through we say this in every episode but just in case you're new on really heavy cases sometimes we'll interject like tangents or random humor partially because it is so heavy and it makes it a little more bearable to talk about Yeah. Yeah. Again, this one, when we were researching, we had to stop a little early to watch something or get, you know, TikTok it up or do something before bed because it was just very heavy. And especially when it went to things like interviews with parents and the camp counselors, they were hard watches. Yeah. And I mean, even just reading stuff, I would be reading and just like crying, taking notes at the same time because it's like so heavy. Yeah. So horribly Michelle died the day before her parents' wedding anniversary. And from that point forward, they stopped celebrating their anniversary. Now, her last letter said, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I'm writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tentmates are in the last tent in our unit. My tentmates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. That's so sweet. So, so sweet. So next, we're going to talk about the camp itself. And so the camp was named Camp Scott, and it was in Mays County, Oklahoma. And it was a two-week summer camp where kids slept in tents, swam, and hiked. I've seen a few different accounts that talk about the darkness that was there. And I don't mean like the darkness. I mean that it was pitch black at night. So, so dark. And so Amy Sullivan, who was 10 years old, and she was a first-time camper in 1977, talked about the darkness as magical and scary. 
She said, it was the darkest dark I'd ever known. I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or shut. I also saw accounts from campers where they talked about that for the rest of their lives after having been at Camp Scott, they would compare darkness to darkness there because it was the darkest they had seen. So like, I could see some light. It's better than Camp Scott. Yeah. And so, as I said earlier, the campgrounds were about an hour and a half drive from the parking lot where parents dropped off their kids. Camp Scott was owned and operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928, and it was 410 acres, so it was massive. It was thick with woods. The units, which were kind of like in a horseshoe with counselor tents in the center, were named after Native American tribes. And the counselor tent had, I believe it was three counselors in there. And then the tents themselves were 12 by 14 with canvas sides, and they were up on platforms. So in the first two-week session of 1977, there were 130 campers. And Cookie Trail, which was the only entrance in or out of the camp, was off Oklahoma 82. It's a little scary to think that there was only one entrance in or out of the camp and that it was still so easy for someone to get in there. Yeah, I was talking to my mom, who has done Girl Scouts since 1983, which is before she had a daughter or contemplated having a daughter. (laughs) And she was like, the scariest campgrounds I've ever been to are ones where they're easily accessible to like people who aren't camping. There's one in Maryland where maybe a half mile out from the campsite, there's houses. And she was like, I don't like that. Like, I don't want to be that close to people, which feels fair. And that's one of the reasons why I find it interesting that it was like right off of Oklahoma 82 and that it was accessible because 410 acres, it could be deeper, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It seemed like it was a bit of a trek to get there, though. But still, I feel like I'd be the opposite. Like if we go camping or whatever, I feel like if we're isolated that I for sure will be visited by something scary. But if we're like in a row of cabins or something like that, then I'm like, oh, it's okay. Maybe they'll get the neighbor first. Oh my God. You're not wrong. I want more people. More people versus the one bad thing or the ghost or werewolf, whatever's outside works for me. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. I would say it is kind of unnerving. Now it's different. Like I don't mind being near other campers. It's people who aren't in the camp that I don't want to be near. So love some cabins. And also just because like, I think cabins are cute and it creates a cute little like campsite. And because I prefer cabin camping over tent camping any day. Oh, yeah. There's no way I'd tent it up ever. (laughs) I mean, I had I did it as a child. I can't say as an adult, I would be like dying to like sleep on the ground. I feel like I'd be rickety the next day. Yeah. But so like cabins, other cabins, sure. But not like... Let's just go ahead and basically camp behind someone's house. No. Also, I am looking at this camp. It is not that far down. No. There's a long road, but I think maybe, maybe it's a mile, if that. So it shut down after this happened, but it was visited by ghost hunters who think the three girls still haunt the camp. And I go back and forth. I'm like, if I were the parent, right? I feel like if someone was saying that, that would make everything so much worse. Yeah. It just feels like it's in poor taste. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it ever not in poor taste to say that a place is haunted when there's living relatives? I feel like it's different, though, when it's children. Like if you're like, grandma haunts something. okay, but like little Susie does, you're like, oh, my gosh. 
Children are definitely worse, but I think that living relatives is the metric for me. Like, don't say it's haunted if, like, that guy's wife is still alive and you're going to, like, sell tourists to, like, where her husband was, like, murdered terribly. Yeah. Or someone's father. That's what I think is the cutoff for me. I'm like, "Mm, you could wait a few years. It'll keep being haunted. Yeah. So the Girl Scouts sold the property in the 80s. But the new owners haven't done any improvements. Now the property is owned and used for a hunting lease. In April of 1977, a training session ended early when one of the counselor aides' tents, who Michelle Hoffman, we just talked about, was vandalized and a note was left in a box of donuts. And part of the note said, we're on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. An effigy of a man was hanged from a tree by its neck. The note also mentioned Martians, though, so it was kind of all over the place. A group of girls confessed to the note, and then it was thrown away. That still gives me chills, though. It still gives me chills. It also gives me um, Mary Bell vibes. Ooh, yeah, you're right. It does. With her weird little friend, Norma. You can never forget Norma. Fucking Norma. Fucking Norma. So the murders. They happened on June 13th, 1977. So this year was the 44th anniversary of the murders. At 1.30, Carla Wilhite, one of the counselors for Kiowa, heard moaning sounds. She went to investigate, but she couldn't find anything. She figured it was just animals and went back to sleep. These all just make me so incredibly sad that, like, something was heard that night. Yeah. At 2 a.m., another camper hears Lori crying, Mama, Mama, and recognized the voice. She knew, though, that Lori had nightmares, so she figured it was just that, and she went back to sleep. That's heartbreaking. She also probably like she was a kid and she was like, oh, she's just having a nightmare. She'll be fine. And then like the worst thing is happening. Yeah. So sometime during that night, late at night, early morning, you could say the killer cut his way into the tent and he bludgeoned and raped Lori and Michelle. Denise was bound with duct tape and gagged before being taken outside and sexually assaulted, then strangled. There was a fingerprint on a flashlight that was found at the scene, but they never found a match. There also was a boot print, and it was nine and a half in men's. And in my opinion, that seems fairly small for like a grown man's footprint, right? Yeah. I I was like, huh, what is the average? So I Googled it. And Google said ten and a half is the average man's. So I guess it's not too out of the norm, but it also could be maybe a young man or maybe even a woman because that would be a size 11. Yeah. I mean, it was a men's boot print. That doesn't mean that the shoe was being worn by a man. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it just it could be anything. They were found under a tree about 150 feet from their tent. So Carla, their counselor, was on her way to take a shower a little after 6 a.m. when she found the girls laying near the base of a tree. Denise was laying on top of her sleeping bag and there was two other sleeping bags, but she didn't see girls laying on top of them. So Carla went to get the nurse thinking maybe there had been an accident to help Denise. Because I think she saw her laying there still and was like, I'll just go get somebody and didn't really check her as much. But also like she was a kid, like she also was a kid. Right. And so when the nurse gets there, that's when they go to help Denise and they realize she's dead. And then they also, now that they're right there, they can see that the other two sleeping bags aren't empty and that the other two girls have been stuffed inside and zipped in. It also appeared that the killer had unsuccessfully attempted to clean up the blood off of the wooden floors in the tent with mattress covers and towels. 
The bloody materials were stuffed in the sleeping bags with the girls. Footprints showed that the killer walked past the counselor's tent, and the counselors also reported that a purse and some glasses were stolen. So keep that in mind, because we're going to get to that in a little bit. So most of the attack had happened in the tent, and that was just a few yards from the counselor's tent. And I saw some descriptions say it was a few yards, and I've seen other descriptions say that it was like 80 yards, that it happened to be the furthest from the counselor's tent, which also might be why that was the one that was chosen. It seems so strange to me that you put such young girls, for some of them, the first year of Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you think that maybe the ones that were about to cycle into AIDS, like the older girls should be the furthest away, in my opinion, at least? I would think that just from being in Girl Scouts, that what they probably had, this is a truly wild guess. I would imagine that they had the oldest counselors watching the youngest girls and that all young girls were in that area because typically they they lump girls by age. So it could have all been like eight to 10 year olds or seven to 11, you know, so where they all fell in that. So a neighboring landowner said that there was an unusual amount of traffic near the camp between 2.30 and 3 a.m. And on 82, on Oklahoma 82, which we were talking about earlier, there are properties that are actually closer to the road where they could have easily seen lots of cars. So the next morning, the rest of the campers are gathered into the mess hall for breakfast while the police section off the crime scene. When news began to spread, the deaths were attributed differently. Sometimes it was violence. Sometimes it was a terrible accident. And a lot of them didn't even know what happened. A lot of the little girls until they got home. Yes. And we'll talk about Hoffman, too. So the next part we're going to talk about is the aftermath. So what happened next? Betty talked about missing Denise that Monday morning because of her routine. She was at work where she was a teacher's aide when someone came to bring her into the principal's office. She didn't remember who told her just what they said. They said Denise is dead. She and two other girls. Parents were contacted by Girl Scouts and told that their children were being brought back to Tulsa to the Girl Scouts Council building. The buses got there around 2.15 in the afternoon. The girls, again, they didn't know what happened. So they didn't understand why their parents were freaked out or why the news was there. So just a little bit about Girl Scout organization. Girl Scout leaders are volunteers, as are their assistant leaders. But there are people who are paid employees of Girl Scouts and they work within the council buildings. So that's like the paid portion of the Girl Scouts of America. There are different councils and different jurisdictions like where I am it's Girl Scouts of Central Maryland it would be something different where Amanda is but so this one would be like where people actually were employed it's not like where they had their meetings which I just felt like if you didn't know what it was this is like the corporate-esque kind of place for Girl Scouts in that area. So Hoffman stayed behind to help the camp officials and law enforcement. She was mainly answering the phone. She got back to Tulsa that night. She didn't cry until she saw her mom. Can we talk about how they had children doing crazy emotional labor? That's horrible. She was, I believe she was 15 at this point, 14 or 15. The fact that they had her answering the phone with likely parents and news sources asking about these murders is heinous. It's awful. I couldn't do that at that age. No, but also, I mean, I could actually, no, I think I could have at that age. If someone was like, we need you to do this. I would be like, whatever you need me to do, because it would be a terrible thing. And I would just want to help because I wouldn't know how to process that type of situation. And also, she probably didn't know much, just that three girls had died, not what had happened. You're right. She didn't know who it was yet. But I just feel like the emotional toll 
and having to be a part of that would just be a lot. Absolutely. Well, and I think we'll get to it in a second, but especially when she learns more. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like I, I would imagine like maybe at that moment it felt like she was just in survival mode. But when she recalls that experience, I'm sure it feels a lot worse. Yeah. So again, she didn't know what exactly happened. She knew that three kids had died. But she didn't know who. There were 130 kids, right? So yeah, how could she have known? When she was flipping through the newspaper, that's then when she saw Denise's face. The paper had been calling her by her first name, which was Doris. So she didn't realize it was Doris Denise Milner. So Betty Milner said every day it was a struggle. Every day when I opened my eyes, my first thought was that my child was gone. You look outside and the world goes on, the sun shines, the birds sing, and you ask why. It hurts my heart. Heartbreaking. So, so heartbreaking. So 10 days after the killings, items belonging to a man named Gene Leroy Hart and having to do with the murders were found in a cave that was about three miles from the camp. And the items that they had found were a roll of tape. And now remember that Denise was bound with duct tape sunglasses, which presumably are the ones that were taken from the camp, and a flashlight. So the other part was that there was that flashlight that was left behind where they couldn't find a matching print. Inside the flashlight, there was like parts of a newspaper, which feels strange. I don't understand why they would have done that. Yeah. But inside the cave, there was a newspaper with corresponding pages missing from it. So say the sports section was missing and that's what was in there. I don't know if it was that one specifically, but that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so Jean Leroy Hart, who we're going to just call Hart going forward, had kidnapped two pregnant women and raped one. He had escaped from prison a few years earlier. Terrifying. Yes. Agreed. Also, like, what is wrong with you? So police immediately suspected him and ramped up efforts to find him. I thought it was very interesting, and we'll get to this in a bit, that they thought this man who was raping adult women was going after little girls. Because, like, my initial thought was, like, this is the biggest, baddest guy they have, so it has to be him because there can't be another person who's this terrible here. That's kind of how, like, my brain kind of wraps around it. And so Hart was an experienced outdoorsman, and he also had family in the area, including his mother. Police, volunteers, dogs, and aircrafts were used to search for Hart. People thought that Hart was working with a medicine man who was hurting the dogs that were used in the search because some of the dogs died. So sad. Which, it's very sad that the dogs died. But it's also very strange that they're like, there was a medicine man involved and there's magic. And it's like, no, it's just a guy who does terrible things who's missing. Yeah. Anyhow. So he was about 5'10", 200 pounds, black hair and brown eyes. Now, interesting note, we talked earlier about the shoe, nine and a half in men's. Hart wore an 11 and a half shoe. Like you could wear bigger shoes, but you can't wear smaller shoes. No. Not comfortably. Not comfortably. Sperm had been found in the girls, but Hart had undergone a vasectomy procedure years before. So that's strange. His mother said that she had visions from God that concerned her son didn't murder the girls and had said Sheriff Weaver had tried to frame him, quote, because he don't like Indians. And I'm going to be honest, like the more I read about this, the more I kind of felt like maybe that was it. Don't get me wrong. He's not an innocent person. He belonged in prison. But I don't know if he did this. And so Hart was eventually found in a man named Sam Pigeon's home. Now, during the second search of Sam Pigeon's home, they found a corncob pipe and a mirror belonging to a counselor who had reported them missing during the murders. 
And a lot of people think that they were planted because where they said they found them, they would have been found in the first search. So it's very convenient. Well, and also those are very strange things to steal, you know, and like like you were mentioning the newspaper too. Why on earth would someone take one random section, put it in a flashlight, leave that there, but, you know, still have the rest of the paper? Yeah. Did he steal something from the women that he had harmed before? Yeah, I would be interested in that. But I also, science side of the world, is there something that newspaper and a flashlight would do? I don't know. Like, that doesn't make sense. Batteries or a crank, if it's one of those cranky ones. But like, why there would be newspaper, I don't really know. Now, it is not altogether surprising that if someone was living in a cave, they would have an incomplete newspaper because chances are once they were done enjoying that fine reading material, they were using it as fire starter to put underneath their kindling to like start their fire. Yeah. So that feels like a coincidence. What if it was like the first page was missing? Right, right. So as Lindsay mentioned, he was arrested. He was arrested on April 6, 1978 and charged. His preliminary hearing was between June and July of 1978. It took about a month. It was the longest preliminary hearing in state history. Support for the defendant increased. A lot of people were like wearing shirts showing their support and they even raised money for him. The Cherokee Nation Tribal Council also voted and donated $12,500 for his defense. However, they did make it a point to say that they were not indeed taking a side on his guilt or innocence, but they just wanted to ensure that he received a fair trial. On March 5th, which is almost two years after the murders, the trial began. Jury consisted of six men and six women. The state's case was on two types of evidence. Biological, which included hair and sperm samples found on the girls, vet and expert witness testimony linked to heart, and items that could put him near the crime scene, which were a pair of sunglasses allegedly stolen from a camp counselor, a roll of tape that matched the tape found at the scene, photos linked to heart, and just kind of off topic, but once he had worked in a prison photo lab. Interesting. And they were all discovered in that cave, right? I also wonder, I mean, I'm unfamiliar with many, but how many brands of duct tape are there? If there's only one brand of duct tape that's readily available in an area, then the duct tape's going to match. That's true. Yeah, I mean, there's nowadays people make stuff out of duct tape, so I feel like there's probably more. You can buy zebra print duct tape nowadays, but like, I feel like in 1977, it was duct tape. Yeah, that's true. So he did leave no fingerprints, though. Biological evidence reportedly pointed to heart. But it wasn't done conclusively because DNA testing would not come until the 80s. So it it was hard to really pin it on him. So defense, they wanted to put the authorities and their investigation on trial, essentially, because they said that it was the prosecution's grand design to convict an innocent man. They insinuated that pieces of the evidence from the cave and cabin had been planted, and they ignored the possible other candidates it could have been. So some people thought maybe Bill Stevens, who was a convicted rapist also. But later it was discovered that Stevens had been investigated and eliminated as a suspect. Betty Milner said that hearing the graphic details on the murders were hard to hear. And for some of them, it was the first time hearing all of the details. And we'll get into that a little bit more in our next section on kind of like what some of the parents do after this. But that's a really important note to kind of hear is that can you even imagine that now? Like the first time someone's hearing about that is the trial. 
Yeah. I think the just the not knowing is horrific. And like making someone hear that for the first time in a room full of people who are strangers is cruel. That's not fair. It's not fair at all. The trial was a spectacle and there were even outbursts between the counsel and the judge. Both attorneys were called to the bench to be reprimanded. That's how just absolutely ridiculous all of it was. People would come up to Betty Milner and say things like, Hart didn't kill your daughter. Disgusting. Mm -hmm. Local restaurants also had collection jars for Hart. Hart didn't publicly talk. However, he did do a media conference. But after that, he went back to silence. He didn't take the stand during the trial. On March 29th, closing arguments concluded and the jury found him not guilty. One juror told news sources that all 12 agreed after only five minutes of deliberation that he was not guilty. When the verdict was read, people cheered. And Betty Milner ended up saying about the Hart supporters is, quote, just shouted like they were at a ball game and their team had won. I think that hit me harder than the verdict itself. Well, of course. I mean, here's the thing. Whether he was guilty or not guilty, the trial was still about the murder and rape of three girls. Yeah, your baby girl. Your baby girl. So regardless of the outcome, like I personally don't think that he is the guy for it. But I also have enough tact to be like, there's still a parent who's trying to find justice for their baby and they don't have all the details and they don't have all the facts. They're relying on law enforcement to do their job, Mm -hmm. their fucking job. And all they know is that the person that police told them killed their daughters is going free. Yeah. Something that Hart's status as a local football star and as a Native American is the reason why he was acquitted. Personally, I also think it's just they didn't have the right amount of evidence. Yeah, I mean, for me, it comes down to semen and a vasectomy. Shoe size. Because if it was him, he wasn't alone. That's true. I do kind of think that there had to be more than one person because absolutely you would have heard more. Like, because the things he was doing, you can only do to one person at a time. And so the other girl would have been screaming her head off. If they woke up. True. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that didn't even occur to me. There's three of them. But also the fact that it would have been a decent amount of time. Like, he couldn't do all of that in a matter of minutes. At least I don't think so. Yeah. But, like, kids do sleep pretty hard. But if he was doing all the horrible things inside the tent, then he could have risked waking one. And I feel like that risk would have been too high. Yes. Could they have slept through it? Maybe. Could they not have? He would have had to be prepared for that. Yeah. And it's not as though there was doors. It was a flap. Like, if they would have woken up, they could have run straight out. Mm -hmm. But it was very dark, too. Yeah. No, I know. Well, that's, again, that's one of the reasons why I think that there's more than one. Because if they ran out, someone could just grab them. Mm-hmm. Like if there was one person in the front of the tent, it just made him go back. In. But OK. So as we mentioned, Hart was acquitted. But remember, he was still in prison for kidnapping two pregnant women and raping one. And he'd already been convicted. So when he went back to prison, it was for a 308 year sentence that included the rape, the kidnapping and the escape sentences. He died on June 4th of 1979. So just a few, I believe it was just a few months after he was acquitted and he died of a heart attack. Many of Hart's supporters thought that the death and the timing were too convenient and that there may have been foul play. Hart's family did not have a history of heart problems and the medical examiner found severe blockages, which suspect, suspect, 
But also, I mean, how old was he? From what I saw, he was a relatively young guy. So if you didn't have a history of heart disease, maybe that is weird. I'm not sure. But that's not his story today. So Hart's attorney also thought that Sheriff Weaver singled out Hart because he had escaped the county jail twice and he wanted revenge because it was embarrassing. And it was embarrassing. Yeah, it is absolutely embarrassing if he could do that multiple times. Yes. So after Hart was acquitted, the Mays County Sheriff's Office didn't reopen the case. Sheriff Weaver said, I do not intend to reopen any investigation. We had the man we were after. That makes me so mad. That makes me like livid in a way that I can't describe because these three little girls did not get justice. No, because some guy had an ego problem. Right, exactly. And a lot of the time, too, when we're looking at it, it is ego problems, especially when we're talking about like Texas killing fields, too. Yes. Where they're like, nope, this is the guy. We're not going to look for anyone else. And especially like with self, too. Right. Like that happened to them where they decided this guy did it when the other guy was just out there killing. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me, I have mentioned it earlier, but my logic was that, oh, look, this is two different offenders because here's Hart, who is kidnapping and raping pregnant women versus somebody who is murdering and sexually assaulting children. So I looked into it a little bit and it's interesting because there's two different phrases. So if you're talking about someone who sexually assaults children, it's child sexual abusers. If it's somebody who attacks adults and what you identify as an adult or a not child kind of changes depending on the source. Because I saw some sources saying like as young as 14. Ugh. Yeah, which is which is its own problem, right? That's its own problem. But like, so there's rapist and child sexual abusers. And it's really difficult to get accurate data on sexual offenders and their assaults because they have to self-report, right? Like you can look at the criminal system, but that's only a fraction of what actually happens. Mm-hmm. And so you're relying on offenders to like answer surveys about what they've done. So problematic at best. In a 2007 study by Ken et al., they found that only 8% of sexual offenders had assaulted both adults and children. However, a 2010 study by Sims and Prove showed that about 35% of sexual offenders had assaulted both. Interesting. And moreover, this study also showed that those who sexually assault across age groups are also more likely to be serial offenders. Which is very interesting because I really did think that adults are children, like it's one or the other, not both. Yeah, I did too. That number is a lot higher than I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's still the majority don't. But the fact that like a little over a third, much higher. It's still, yeah, more than I thought. Yeah. And it's also interesting because like when I first read this, I was like, it could not be hard because he did this to adult women, which is a weird kind of framing I had in my head. But anyway, so in 1985, Lori and Denise's parents sued the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. And again, that's the name of the council in that area. So and it's kind of like the bureaucratic head of Girl Scouts in that region. So they sued for negligence for the camp's failure to provide adequate safety measures. I think that's honestly kind of fair to not have safety in place around little girls. Yes. So one of the things that is beaten to your head in law school are the elements of negligence. So this is how I remember them. It is, does Beyonce hate cats and dogs? Go with me. Duty, breach, causation, and damages. Does Beyonce hate cats and dogs? So did they have a duty to protect the girls? Yes, they did. Did they breach that duty? Clearly. But for that breach, would this have happened? And was there damages? Yes, to them, right? Yeah. 
But here, the jury found in favor of Girl Scouts. And I thought that it was really interesting because there was testimony from former campers, counselors, and who talked about thefts and strange happenings in the days leading up to the camp and on the night of the crimes. They also talked about people hearing screams and there were sightings of a strange man. The parents' attorney argued that the Kiowa unit was specifically was laid out badly. It was 86 yards from the counselor's tent and it was obscured. And the defense used Hart's inability to be captured during a 10-month manhunt as proof that reasonable security measures would not have deterred him. Which I find fascinating because here they are using a man whose innocence has been proven in a court of law as the standard on whether there was causation, right? Because what you're looking at is, but for their breach, will the damage have happened? And here what they're saying is, oh, like it doesn't matter how good we were, he was better. It doesn't matter how good our security system was because this guy who was tried could have gotten in either way when he at least in court was deemed to not be the murderer. So a really interesting maneuver that apparently the jury bought. I hate it. I hate it. And I hate it because now that being said, I also do not think that the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council was purposefully not doing what they could to protect those girls. I think they lived in a time when people were real loosey-goosey with kids. Like, they put 130 girls in the middle of the woods, and then they had, like, three teenagers watching, like, 50 of them. Not 50, but, like, there was multiple tents in that horseshoe, and there was only three camp counselors. Like, it was the 70s. That's all I can say about it. It was the 70s, and I think they did the best they could. Yeah, I can't imagine children around that age right now being watched by three young women. Yeah. Well, also, and here's my thing. I don't think it was the Girl Scouts' fault. However, I hate that we're at another point when these girls' parents didn't see justice for their babies. Well, that and also with the state knowing that they, it's their fault, this guy escaped and they believe it to be him, right? Even though he was proven innocent, they should have been doing better too. They should have been like, the guy is known to be in this area. He has family here. We need to really ramp up patrol, you know, like, or we need to do something because we know that this Girl Scout camp meets every year. Yeah. We need to be present. We need to do something about this. Well, and I mean, that's one of the interesting things is like, Okay, now if you go to Girl Scout camps, a lot of times it's going to be like fenced off in the woods. Like it's not just open to the public. You couldn't just turn off of a road and come down. Yeah. But like that's certainly not true for all of them. My favorite camp is on the eastern shore of Maryland. It's absolutely beautiful. It overlooks the bay. I went there so many times growing up that it's like my most fond Girl Scout memory is going to camp, right? But you literally pulled off a road and drove down. Parked and got out of your car. And the first place you pass the what I presume was the owner's like house. And then the first place you get to is a cabin. Like that's like the first thing. And then it's the mess hall. Interesting. It could happen. The more we cover this, the more my child is not allowed to leave the house ever again. Yeah, I mean, Amanda and I talked about after this, it happened to be that just a lot of the crew time things that we were looking at recently had to do with children. And it's so, so heavy. And I'm aware that as a non-parent, it is heavier for Amanda because she has like her baby who she's like imagining like, oh God, like this is a terrible thing. Let me just go smother you with love. Yeah. So then in 1989, there was a reverend named Gerald Manley, and he reached out to law enforcement to say that four men were responsible and even provided two names. 
Police investigated, but they said they couldn't find any connection. Now, interestingly, Reverend Manley said that the four men had asked him to go to the camp with them because they needed his, quote, Christian influence. So he did. And what they did was they took him to where the girls were. And he said that he saw the body of one of the girls and then the two other sleeping bags that it appeared to be stuffed. His account had never been corroborated, and he even passed the lie detector test and provided the same story under hypnosis. Now, we know a lie detector test can be faked. And also, like, it's a little suspect because we're now 12 years later, right? Like, why why 12 years later are you coming forward? Well, and wouldn't that also get him in trouble? It could. He saw it and he didn't report it. Yes, I don't know about because there's like confidentiality between clergy, right? Like that you can't like make a priest testify, I believe. I'm not sure on that one, honestly. But I could see because like I want to think that it's like, are you a danger to yourself or others? Yes. But if he did the thing already, he's done the thing already. Mm, Interesting. I don't like it. I also don't like it. So in 2008, DNA testing was performed on evidence collected from the crime scene, like the pillowcase. And interestingly, it had female DNA. Hmm. Two of the three girls were ruled out as a DNA match, but they were unable to rule out the third girl. People think that it may be from a woman who might have been present at the killing. I agree with that. I think there's more people. Sherry Farmer, who was Lori's mom, said, I've always felt in my gut that there was a girl present. Given the DNA results, you have to wonder if there was also a female who took part in the murders. Well, okay, let's start with one, that damn boot. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said it's small. We talked about that boot in the beginning. Yeah. Well, like relatively small. I shouldn't say it's small because it is a, a large shoe size for a woman typically. But still, like could be. It still is a common size. Like you can go to any store and get that size. Yeah. Also, I mean, a woman at that camp probably wouldn't have been looked at twice. Nope. She could have just blended right on in. It's true. Unfortunately, it's so true. I hate it. So some sources said that the DNA wasn't conclusively tied to heart because it was early in DNA testing and it only matched a few of the markers. However, in 1989, of five aspects of DNA tested from the scene, three matched the body fluids taken from heart. Hmm. So one fact that I found was only one in 7,700 American Indians would match the sample of fluids. But because only three matched of five total, they were deemed inconclusive. (sighs) I feel like one in 7,700 is a pretty good match, though. I feel like it is, too. But I also don't know what the Native American population there is. So if they had a really high concentration of Native Americans in that area, perhaps that isn't that impressive of a number. That's true. And also, again, I just think if he was there, he wasn't by himself. Like he couldn't have done it alone because he had a vasectomy. So something to note, there are talks of someone else being suspected. There is a film being made that says Carl Myers is to blame. So there's this guy and his name's John Russell and he's an ex-convict who is making the film and it's called Candles about the case. And Myers confessed to him when they shared adjacent cells. So he was in prison for writing bad checks. So he wasn't in prison for anything truly heinous. I mean, don't write bad checks, but like, meh. It's a lot different than murder. Yeah. Yeah, just a touch. 
So I did look it up on IMDb and the film is currently in pre-production, but it's been a while that it's been in that state. Yeah. And there is a Facebook page, though, for the movie, and it does have semi-recent updates. So it sounds like it's still going. Myers died, though, in 2013 while awaiting execution for a 1996 killing of Cindy Marzano. Russell reached out to law enforcement and was like, hey, I think it's Myers. But so I'm pretty sure law enforcement just shrugged him off. So in 2017, the sheriff of Mays County, who was Mike Reed, was eight years old when the murders occurred. When DNA funding for the investigation of the murders ran out, he worked to raise about $30,000 from private donors. So on the 40th anniversary, two statements were released, one by OBSI and one from the Girl Scouts. And from what I understand, the Girl Scouts didn't really talk about it until the 40th year anniversary. They didn't really talk about it beforehand. And both pretty much talked about the murders and the OBSI one talked about the acquittal and that no other evidence has surfaced pointing to any other suspect. They also talked about the private donations to pay for the expensive DNA testing and that it's so sensitive that it couldn't be performed at their own laboratory. But unfortunately, at that time, they said results were still not yet available. So they were just saying that it was like a significant event. And then as for the Girl Scouts, like I said, it's like their first time publicly talking about the murders and they acknowledge them finally, right? And in their statement, they also say that the safety of the girls is their highest priority. And for obvious reasons, they don't disclose their comprehensive security plans, which I do appreciate. Yeah. And basically that they have arrangements with all emergency services. And they also still offer outdoor adventures for their girls because it's a good opportunity for them. But now, of course, there are a lot more safety measures in place. Yeah, I mean, growing up, there were so many safety measures in place. And my mom has done different troops at different times. But she wasn't a parent who had a daisy troop when I was a daisy and a brownie troop when I was a brownie and then a junior troop when I was a junior. Like she stuck with ages and When I got to her troop, then I was in her troop. But a lot of times, like, they have to have permission slips for everything. They have to need, like, certain numbers of adults. And that's on top of, like, the campgrounds themselves. So just interesting that, like, they are really structured now and very intense about safety. That's good. In a way that maybe they weren't then. Yeah. So we're going to move on and we're going to talk about some of the things that happened with the girl's parents. So Richard Gousset said that when people were calling about his daughter and his daughter's death, he felt like he was just a piece of furniture. Like they didn't have empathy when they were talking to him. When officials called him on June 17th, which is four days after the murders, they wouldn't disclose of her cause of death and that Girl Scouts contacted their attorneys before calling the families, which also it should have been police who called the families, not Girl Scouts. That's just like not the order of events. He found out some really terrible details from the news. So he found out that the girls have been bound by their wrists from the news. And he said, it's kind of unnerving. Your daughter is dead and you're the first suspect. So like, not only was he not being told, but they were like looking into him and he's like, what's going on? Yeah. So during Hart's trial, Gousset said that police and prosecutors just ignored him. And he actually went on to establish the Victim's Bill of Rights in Oklahoma and the Victim's Compensation Board. He and his wife both felt like they had been ignored. And so that's why they did this. So the Victim's Bill of Rights is to keep victims and families involved in the legal process because, and we've talked about this before, but when the state is bringing a case, they're not bringing a case on behalf of the family for justice, right? They are bringing a 
case against the person being charged in the interest of the state because it's in the interest of the state to get criminals off the street. So in that process, if, you know, it's not required, it's kind of easy to see how you could forget that there are real people who are living who are affected by losing their family members, right? Yeah. And so the Victims Compensation Board helps victims with medical expenses and other bills. And that's kind of like, I, I have read many an article about women who were sexually assaulted and then faced intense hospital bills because of being sexually assaulted because they would have to sue in civil court in order to get that from their rapist. That's horrible. It makes sense, though. Like, our medical system is broken. Yeah, I read a meme yesterday that said, ah, America, where if you have money, you're allowed to have teeth. The fact that we have such like a cattywampus medical care system that it doesn't make any sense and a discussion for another day. But so Richard has said, because of my daughter, maybe the world will be a little better place to be. Hopefully some good is coming out of this, which you know who it reminds me of. Tim Miller. Tim Miller. Yeah, I hope he's doing well. I do too. And that's heartbreaking, but also like that's the way you honor her. Mm hmm. By making sure that when this does happen again, because it will, which is sick and we hate it, but it's true that like other families don't have to go through this as bad as they did. Yeah. Yeah. And so her father still questions whether there was just one person or whether it was multiple people. And it's interesting, too, because I, I saw interviews with her sister where she talks about being like very, very protective of her own kids. And I want to think that her sister had even had like a really hard time sending her own children to summer camp because she knew that it was like good and they were going to have a good time and that like, what are the odds Right. But like still was like very worried. And she still hopes that the mystery will be solved. And oof, heartbreaking. Yeah. You don't think how it affects generations after in a family as well. Mm -hmm. Often you're like, oh, they're poor parents. Oh, they're poor siblings. But like your siblings grow up. They have kids. Those kids are now feeling some of that they went through when their sibling died. So let's check in with the farmer family then. So Lori's parents. Lori's mother, Sherry, founded the Parents of Murdered Children chapter in Oklahoma. One day, Sharon was talking to a woman outside of a grocery store, and the woman asked how many children she had. Sherry didn't know what to say, so she said she had four. Then her youngest child said, no, mommy, you forgot Lori. So Sherry, from that point forward, always said that she had five. When I was reading that, too, I saw that her mom literally was like dreading that question because she was like what do I say like I had five babies but now I have four how do you answer that right and like it was sweet that like her daughter was like I've got this five that's sad oh man Oof. and we're crying and we're crying yeah this whole case was hard but like hearing um the interviews from the parents got me the most even like the 40 year later interviews I was still like I can't yeah. So Lori, again, was the oldest, and she shared a room with one of her sisters, whose name was Misty, and she was the second oldest. She never slept in that room again after Lori's death. And people would say that she was the oldest, and Misty would always tell them, no, Lori is. So Sherry thinks that Hart was guilty, but isn't sure if he acted alone. And like, maybe, like, maybe he was part of it, but he wasn't the only part of it. I think, honestly, that that community wanted to desperately believe they had one really awful human. Mm-hmm. And that there aren't evil people all around. You know what I mean? Like their brains could wrap around one truly awful human, not there's this guy hurting pregnant women and there's all these other people too. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, there is a lot of things that make you think that there were multiple, though. Yeah. So Sherry helped pass something called Marcy's Law in 2018. She did a video urging voters to vote yes and discussed how Lori turned into a number and became a nameless and faceless human while the accused got to become famous. It's really, really sad. How many times do you hear that? All the time. Everyone can name a serial killer, but they can't name a victim from that particular serial killer. And I feel like we talk a lot about true crime. I'd say it's probably about like half of what we cover. Half true crime, half other stuff. And a lot of times what the news covers, like like when we're looking for articles and sources to talk about like what happened at that point, you do see a ton on the murderer and you don't see a ton on the victims and That was one of the reasons why, like, we had the privilege of, like, introducing these girls at the beginning of the episode, because we don't often get to do that. We often don't have that much. Yeah. And we had to dig for some of, like, what they like to do and what they did at home and that sort of thing. And that should be, in my opinion, one of the first things you read. This sweet little girl did this and she loved her garden and she loved her siblings. Right. But no, like, I think it's very true. And you see people who kind of romanticize serial killers. And I don't get it. I just don't get it. Mm -mm. No. So real quick, just to touch on what Marcy's Law is. It's a law that ensures that the victims of crime have equal constitutional rights on the same level as those accused and convicted of crimes. And it provides every victim with a platform to finally be seen by the criminal justice system, which it sounds like a lot of these parents didn't have. It also provides equal rights for crime victims in the criminal justice system. And the examples they used were very interesting. So on Marcy's Law website, they say when someone's arrested, they're read their Miranda rights, right? Like we all know that. Mm -hmm. Well, victims aren't really given anything. They're just like, this happened. Yeah. Good luck. So this law ensures that the victim is given information about what's to come and what actions they have the ability to take. Victims will also have the right to choose to be notified if the accused is ever released. Instead of finding out other ways, I think that's fantastic. That feels like, why do we even have to say that? Oh, absolutely. Like, they should get an alert like, hey, this guy that did this or this girl that did this, like, they are getting released today or they're getting released in a month. They shouldn't have to find out on the news or they shouldn't have to find out in other ways that they get early probation or, you know, things like that. Yeah. And we talked about it many moons ago, but in our Halloween True Crime episode from last October... We talked about John Douglas White, and he had murdered Rebecca Gay. But before he had murdered her, he had attacked a young woman named Teresa Etherton. She was 17 years old at the time. And he choked her and stabbed her 15 times and went to prison for it. Great. But I believe he went for, you know, just a tiny little bit of time. So when he was released, no one told her. And the way she found out was that she was standing in line somewhere and he was just behind her. It still makes me sick to think of it. It still makes me so mad because, like, she heard his voice before she saw him. No, like, that's not the way the world should work. No, no. So I'm really happy that this passed. And like you said, it shouldn't even be a thing that has to be passed. But I'm glad it did. Yes. And then Sherry also, in one of the interviews, said, we wonder what she would be like, who she'd be married to, what she'd be doing. We are a family of faith. We hold that dearly. And Cheryl Stokes, who was friends with Lori Farmer, and eventually she went on to be a family advocacy specialist for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They started assisting in the investigation a couple years ago. And Cheryl went into this work because she saw how the families were treated in this event. 
And something that I thought was really sweet, her office has three photos on display, one of Lori, one of Denise, and one of Michelle. And she wears a button that says remembering Lori every May 25th, which is National Missing Children's Day. Oof. It's hard. That's sad. So, and last, just to touch in on the Milners, Betty Milner's youngest daughter, Crystal, named her daughter Denise after her big sister that she never got to know. Oh, man. Are you crying with us? Okay. So a lot of times we have ending conversations, but I think we can end with, these were three wonderful young women, and it's very, very sad. And I don't have a lot of words, but Denise Milner, Laurie Farmer, Michelle Gouzet, very sad, but remember their names. So hug your babies tight. And again, special thank you to James for sharing the story with us. And again, if you guys ever have anything that you want us to cover or look into, feel free to reach out. Thank you again for listening and thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 